Welcome to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Bolden Networks is unlocking the power of an interconnected future by bringing you insights in transport from around the globe. Today, Chris Pichette from Bolden Networks is talking to Chris Cheek. Chris is a storied leader in transport with over 40 years of experience across several organizations, working today as a commentator and analyst of public transport matters across the UK. From his management experience to founding what are now known as the UK Bus Awards and prolific writings about travel, both fact and fiction, Chris indeed lives to transport. Hello, we're joined today by Chris Cheek, uh, author and longtime analyst in UK transit, uh, I guess transit in general. Uh, more than 50 years, Chris, in, in transit. You started from a very young age. Indeed, yes, yes. Uh, uh, it's 51 years next week, actually. So. <laughs> wow. That you started before there was even really any education available in transit, I understand. Yes, indeed. You went to school and tried to learn about transit. Yes. Um, we, um, when I went to university, there was one course, I think, at Salford on transport planning, which uh, I didn't really fancy. So uh, I stuck to medieval history, which was uh, uh, great fun as well. <laughs> no, no parallels between the two, I hope. I don't think so. No, no. We don't have violent popes doing things. Or... <laughs> um, you, you, I've seen from your, your background, you've focused in, in transit, not just transit, but in travel in general. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that later. But maybe you can just give us your, your resume in a few minutes and, and give everybody the extent of, of how you've been involved in transit. Yeah, uh, well, I started um, as a, a senior management trainee with the old National Bus Company, which was the state-owned company that ran most of the buses in England and Wales outside London. Um, I then held a couple of uh, management line management posts, uh, running, running uh, a depot for two years in Wakefield in fairly fraught industrial relations circumstances. Um, and then... Um, <clears throat> Uh, was out of the industry for a couple of years, uh, but then rejoined with a coach company uh, which ran sightseeing tours and contracts in, in London. Uh, and I was there for a couple of years, learned all sorts of lessons there, both about coach travel, but also about wider tourism and marketing. And uh, from there, I rejoined the National Bus Company uh, in a business called London Crusader, which was set up by National Bus to market coach travel to Londoners. Uh, and we had various functions and we had great fun doing sightseeing, private hire brokerage, um, and all sorts of other things during the time. And that really uh, set me on a trail of doing marketing and being fascinated by marketing and PR. Um, when that came to an end with the privatization of the National Bus Company, uh, I went out on my own as a consultant, journalist. Uh, I wrote extensively. Uh, I was a director and uh, part owner of a magazine called Group Travel Organizer magazine for 20 years, uh, and then also uh, consultant and bus predominantly, but then that led into tram and ultimately to rail. Uh, doing private finance initiative bids for about 10 years on the trot, um, which was fascinating. Um, and then, since then, still doing consultancy on a variety of projects, 
and an, trying to analyse, trying to understand the trends in things like demand and costs and what drove them. Uh, and I'm still really at that uh, all these years later. Demand has shifted quite a bit, so your expertise there, I'm sure, is very welcome these days uh, with with the pandemic and uh, and uh, everything that's kicked off from that. Uh, you, uh, I, I read in an article that you mentioned um, public transport is good at corridors. We're not good at diverse trip patterns. Um, and, and that got me thinking about the pandemic and the changes that have happened in demand in the pandemic. I always thought um, that that transit organizations would love a, a better smoothing of demand where you don't have two peaks a day, five days a week, and to be able to smooth that traffic better so you can just meet a regularly predictable uh, demand. Is with the work from home and fewer people going into the office each day, are there some pros and cons to that? Does that smoothing of the traffic help the transit organization more than, say, the loss of income from some riders who don't participate anymore or less? I don't think so because what what's tending to happen um, is that <clears throat> we're getting the same peaks, <clears throat> but on two days less a week. Sorry, just a sec. <clears throat> so that the, the hybrid working um, pattern seems to be Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Um, I won't give you the acronym for that. But um, um, so the result is that particularly, I think this is particularly true of suburban rail, they're left with the same peak problem, but with lower revenues because it's only happening on, on fewer days. That's frequently, um, Reg. In bus, um, certainly again in the UK, outside London, uh, Bus was much less reliant on um, commuting. Um, it was only 20% of demand pre-COVID um, and has uh, broadly stayed that way, but of course of a smaller overall market. So there's less opportunity for peak savings uh, in bus because for years it, it, the peak has been schools rather than commuters. And, and, of course, that still remains the same because demand for uh, home-to-school transport is largely unchanged. Um, so so given your extensive experience in buses, I, I asked the question of a previous uh, interview we did. I asked, uh, why are buses so unsexy? Um, so... Over your let let's reshape that question a little bit. Let's uh, you can you can apply some of this in your answer. But over the over the fifty one years you've been in this industry, what has been the most transformative thing that you've seen, and and where can we go to make buses a little more exciting for for travelers? The three biggest changes over my career have been one, a much greater emphasis on customer service. Uh, than was ever the case <clears throat> in the industry we joined. Um, secondly, in uh, attitudes towards staff and staff management, um, there's a long way to go on that. But I do think we've made enormous progress in uh, in making uh, staff more conscious of their customer relations function. And um, that's, that's something that... Um, 
people are working on. And indeed, uh, one of the things that I've seen in recent years particularly is a shift in recruitment away from people who can drive uh, and looking more for people who, who can look after the customers. Uh, I think you can teach people to drive. It's much more difficult to teach them to smile. Um, and the third thing is an improvement in the quality of the ride. And of course, you know, that big transformation is still to come because, you know, drive, riding on an electric bus uh, or, a, or a hydrogen bus is a, is a different experience. It is a step change uh, in what we deliver. Uh, and as that spreads, you know, there are certainly indications that there is a, a patronage growth benefit from introducing zero emission buses. So the, the, the zero emission to comfort, the connection you just made there, zero emission has its own obvious benefits, but the comfort, is that you're, you're alluding to less rumbling from the engine, more comfortable ride? I remember getting on a bus in New York City and the bus was packed, but all five seats at the very back of the bus were open. And I sat on one and I realized why they were open because there were hot plates sitting right above the engine. Uh, is, is that what you mean by the, the shift to electric makes buses more comfortable? It's, it's noise, uh, it's smoothness of ride, and it's um, less vibration. So the combination of all three, um, and those of us who are, are old enough to remember riding on trolley buses uh, in the UK, the experience is very similar. Um, so it is, it's a very different experience. And the only thing that causes now uh, on electric buses, the only thing that causes any rattling or vibration is the state of the roads. Um, but um, unfortunately, there's nothing operators or authorities can do much about that uh, without huge government funding. Get outside of their control, right? Uh, going back to your, 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 you noted about uh, the passenger experience. What do you what do you think's driving that attention to the passenger experience and 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 who is making that change? Well, initially, certainly in the UK, it was a consequence of deregulation in '86 because uh, much more than previously, for many years previously. Um, the, the companies and the drivers relied on uh, the passengers for their wages and their continued survival. Um, so much greater attention began to be paid to uh, customer service and uh, things like that. I mean, it, I would pretend that uh, everything is ideal everywhere uh, and you know, there's still much to do in the culture change, uh, but it's certainly true and you know, colleagues who've talked to continental European operators through things like UITP certainly say to me that there is some jealousy uh, and envy amongst uh, continental operators at the uh, attention that is paid to customer service in the UK. Now, whether that will survive uh, a move to back to re-regulation and uh, local government control um, is, is an open question and is one of my fears about the way the future is likely to pan out. But my, my earlier question was a bit leading because um, I, have this, I have this perception 
right or wrong, it's very unscientific that a lot of the people leading the passenger experience improvement at transit operators tend to be women. I've just noticed this over the years, speakers at conferences, and like I say, very unscientific, but uh, that that's not only helps the, the gender balance, I guess, within transit, but uh, I, I think that maybe there are some things that um, women perceive better about the transit experience because you and I were speaking earlier, they're more, a more predominant user of transit. The stats certainly show that uh, in the UK, um, and particularly bus, uh, that women make more journeys than men across all the age groups. Um, really, it's even even school kids uh, for some reason. Uh, but that's the uh, evidence from the Department of Transport's annual national travel survey. And I think it reflects, you know, as car ownership grew, uh, you can see the statistics that men were faster at learning to drive and passing their test and getting their licenses than, than women. Uh, so, and of course, in single car households, hubby tended to take the car to work and, and leave the wife at home, uh, still relying on uh, public transport in, in its various forms. So I think for all those reasons. And the other thing that's driving uh, the question of the customer experience, I think, is also um, personal security, uh, and that is much tends to be much more uh, a uh, female concern and preoccupation uh, than it is male. Though, you know, there is certain vulnerability among certain age groups uh, amongst men as well uh, for unsocial behaviour on on transport systems. So, so there are gender-related issues that need to be addressed in the transit industry. We've heard this uh, a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, that's a good trend. I think it should continue. And uh, I am going to have to ask Josh to edit this out because I forgot my next question. <laughs> <laughs> you had mentioned uh, earlier about, uh, I guess, the renationalization of the, the bus program. There's a lot of strain, financial strain on transit industries everywhere. Uh, so that's, uh, I'm going to ask you to prognosticate a, a little bit. And, and where do you see that affecting the industry? And uh, what, what, what are the trends we should expect in the next two years, five years, 10 years? It is a very difficult situation because we're hitting these problems of requiring public support in, in whatever form uh, to keep the, the networks running. Uh, at the same time, of course, uh, that um, governments across the world are also facing enormous fiscal challenges. Um, and this is nowhere is this more true than the, in the, than, than the UK. So you've got a situation where um, there is a need for public support uh, across rail, bus, and and the light rail schemes that exist in the UK, uh, but a great unwillingness uh, to stump up uh, by the Treasury, um, uh, civil servants and and ministers who are more directly connected uh, with responsibility for transit get the problem and understand. But I think once it reaches uh, the finance ministers, then um, there's less sympathy because. 
you know, everybody's facing huge challenges, things like the health service uh, and uh, social care for the elderly, particularly. Uh, and those problems are only going to get worse um, as the population ages over the next 10, 15, 20 years. So there's a mismatch there. And I think from, for a lot of people, pre-COVID particularly, um, the prospect of substantial modal shift uh, from private to public transport, being encouraged by the green lobby and by institutions uh, in government charged with delivering net zero, uh, that, that this was going to be the great savior of the business. After all, if you look at the scale of change needed to deliver the sorts of modal shift in the UK, for example, that the Climate Change Committee, the government statutory advisory body, wants to see, then you would see public transport use in the UK rising by between 100 and 200%. Now, whether the industry could actually deliver that uh, is, is an open question, but I think We'd all like to have the challenge, really. Um, but but I think now there is much less faith uh, in government's willingness and the public's, sorry, government's ability and the public's willingness to stomach the measures uh, that would be necessary in, in order to deliver that modal shift. So I think the view is now that if it does happen, it's not going to happen as quickly as everybody was talking about before. And, you know, political things, you may be aware that there was a parliamentary by-election uh, in August in Boris Johnson's former constituency of Uxbridge, where one of the uh, principal influences on the uh, government side holding on to the seat was the fact that um, <clears throat> TfL and the mayor of London was about to introduce an ultra-low emission zone extension, which meant that people with polluting cars would have to pay £12.50 a day every time they moved to their vehicle. And um, you know, not surprisingly, the owners of those vehicles are not happy about that. And it's widened into a campaign. And a bit like the fuel tax rebellion we saw uh, in the early years of the, of the century, um, we see another occasion where politicians appear to be frozen in the headlights uh, of uh, of adverse public reaction to measures, green measures. So that's going to delay and possibly uh, prevent the sorts of modal shifts that would save the industry's finances in the medium term. So I'm probably less optimistic about the future of the industry than, any, than at any time. Uh, in my last 50 years, really. That's uh, quite a statement and uh, very depressing. <laughs> Indeed. It, it, it it's, it's, it's funny it's because as you were saying that, I, I was thinking, um, you know, the UK has it slightly better off than a number of other countries that don't have a groundswell of support or, or are less... Uh, yeah. Community-oriented, call it, I... I hesitate to, you know, I hesitate to use the word socialism because that's a trigger word for many, but are less socialistic. Um, but uh, in in other places around the world, and I live in North America, public transit is widely viewed as something that you do when you can't, when you don't have a car, you don't have another alternative. 
And so the funding is particularly challenging there. And the environmental concerns are, they vary from place to place. So uh, if the UK is struggling mightily, uh, w what hope does that leave, leave some other countries? How do we, how do we solve these, these issues, which I think, in my belief, are for the common good, when you don't have common support for them. I, I'm basically asking you to take the, take the position of a very bold uh, politician now, but uh, <laughs> if you have any insights, there are, there are a lot of ears ready to listen. Well, one of, one of my favorite quotations from a BBC 1980s sitcom called Yes Minister, which was about the civil service and politics, was uh, the, the civil servant, Sir Humphrey, uh, saying to the minister, um, brave decisions cost you votes, minister. Uh, courageous decisions cost you elections. Uh, and um, I think uh, road pricing, road user pricing, congestion charging, all count as courageous decisions. Uh, and you know, it took an exceptional uh, maverick of a politician in Ken Livingstone to introduce the congestion charge in London. Uh, and repeating that anywhere else is going to be enormously difficult, particularly if it has to go to some form of referendum. And I think the issue uh, with motoring and modal shift is that um, we have a situation where if you ask people in a poll, they will say, yes, they're concerned about the environment, and yes, people should use their cars less. But the subtext is always other people should use their cars less, not me. And I think that's where the difficulty lies. And I think we've got to work hard, not so much uh, using marketing and persuasive techniques which try to make people feel guilty for, for car use, but actually persuading them that just for some of their journeys on some days a week, if they would switch to public transport, they would make a contribution uh, to the green agenda and they would improve things, but you know it doesn't have to imply a fundamental change of lifestyle on every day. And I think that way we could make much more progress uh, than we do at the moment. And there was a very famous uh, German television advert in the 90s which showed a prosperous uh, young executive coming out of his house and heading towards his BMW with his keys ready, uh, and suddenly he tossed them in the air and put them in his pocket and set off for the tram stop. Uh, and the payoff line was people recognise that s some journeys are better on public transport. And I think that's got to be uh, the message we should get across. Um, but Ed, I think we've, we've always got to bear in mind, I mean, I'm... Uh, my private finance initiative work introduced me really in the 90s and the noughties to the idea of generalized cost. You know, the idea that you cost a journey from door to door, including time and money. Uh, and this gives you an indication of how and why people make the most choices they do. And we've got to recognize that in most cases, if you do a generalized cost analysis, of a local journey of, say, four kilometres into a town or city centre, uh, the bus or other public transport will be between three and t four times more expensive than the car. Um, 
and that's aside from the convenience, the comfort, uh, your own space, your own music, etc. The intangible advantages of of using a car. So that you know, provided we enter the battle knowing that that's what we're up against, then you know that informs us as to how we can promote it and, and use persuasion uh, rather th rather than uh, blunt. Um, use the carrot rather than the stick, I think. Didn't you hear that correctly? The bus will be three to four times more expensive than the car? If you if you add up um, walk time to the bus stop, a slower in-vehicle time because it stops more frequently, the walk time at the other end, uh, compared with you know going out, the car's on your drive, you drive to where you want to be, you know, maybe a short walk from the car park to the shops or to your office. Um, but if you if you evaluate those and then add in uh, the marginal cost of car use, because nobody factors in the ownership costs of a car to their perceived journey costs, um, and you add the two together, then, as I say, the, the generalized cost of the bus is four times what it is for the car. Unless, like London, the congestion is so dreadful that actually uh, they're much more equal. I was saying to somebody last night that I can remember sitting in traffic jams in a South London highway uh, on a Sunday afternoon in the 1970s, and that gives you an indication of how different London was for, or and is from from the rest of the UK. Wow, I think my head just exploded a little bit on that statistic. Wow, um, that's uh, something that I think requires a little more investigation. Interesting to say at least that. Um, so yeah, dur during that, uh, you had mentioned polls. You had mentioned the uh, surveys that were happening. Recently, there was a poll where, uh, and I think there are flawed, there's a, a flawed approach to this poll, but uh, the, the government decided that maybe Wi-Fi wasn't a worthy investment on trains because it ranked so much lower than getting there alive and on time that uh, maybe we shouldn't be investing in, in Wi-Fi. Uh, are, is technology, are there elements of technology that will address some of these things? Or where do you see that the, the importance of technology in improving what seem like some dire circumstances around public transit that you've just alluded to? I think, yes, I think technology has got a place. I mean, one of the areas... Uh, we've seen in the UK, particularly over the last 10, 15 years, is a revolution in ticketing um, and the move to off-bus uh, or even on-bus with payment by contactless rather than by uh, cash. Um, so that in many cases, uh, cash represents uh, less than 10% of all transactions now in most parts of the country. Um, so that's seen a revolution that has speeded up boarding and alighting times, uh, which is to the benefit of of the generalised cost equation we were just talking about, uh, and um, the convenience and the not having to think about uh, what the fare is, whether you've got the correct change, and all that sort of thing. So the the in London the oyster revolution, um, particularly. Sorry about the clocks striking um uh, in london 
in London, the oyster revolution particularly uh, has speeded up boarding and alighting to an enormous extent. And it's made people less conscious of the fare that they are paying because actually all it is is a slap on a on a validator rather than oh having to you know get the pound note or the pound coin out and, and put it in the machine so that's made an enormous difference and that is a that's a revolution that's been driven by technology and we're not finished yet i mean we're moving more to uh, nfc and the use of mobile phones for payment um there is the prospect of, of that all moving a stage further. Uh, and, of course, from transit operators, the more they can shift that to the banks through bank cards and, and that sort of thing, the cheaper their back, their own back office becomes, um, which, is, which is always welcome. Um, so that's one area. I think communication with the public uh, You've no doubt read that one of the widest criticisms of the National Rail Network in the UK is that when things do go wrong, nobody says anything. Uh, and I think we, we're we're better than we used to be. It's still not ideal. I've still sat on trains where there's been a 10-minute, 20-minute delay and nobody's said a word. Um, but it, it is better, and that's being driven by technology as well. Um so those are the two areas. I think Wi-Fi on trains um, is a side issue. I think it's a typical example of where the Treasury intervenes to try and cut budgets without understanding what it's doing. Uh, the, the, one of the principal reasons is that the um, Generation 3 technology that was originally installed on the trains is now life-expired and actually doesn't work very well. Um, so that people would say that on-train Wi-Fi isn't very important because on a lot of lines it, it's not up to much. Uh, whereas, of course, if we now move to 5G technology uh, and everything else, then then it will be a lot better. Uh, but certainly, in you know, it's it makes no sense in marketing terms to abolish it, particularly not on intercity trains. Uh, where one of the reasons the finances are doing so badly is the failure of business travel to return. Um, and, and you know, Wi-Fi is a sine qua non. It's an absolute requirement if, you, if you're a business traveler on a train. So it's short-sighted and silly, but, um, you know, that could apply to a lot of decisions made by the present government, and Brexit included, but they won't. This podcast is brought to you by Bolden Networks, unlocking the power of an interconnected future. We're delivering the advanced shared network infrastructures needed for a smart, inclusive, and sustainable future. From interconnected transit to venues, enterprises to smart cities, we're creating new possibilities in the way people live, work, and play. To find out more, visit boldin.com. On the operation side as well, I imagine a lot has happened in 50 years. Uh, the the having buses, I, I, I imagine every bus in the UK is now connected and sends back its telemetry data, its operational uh, data, everything about the bus. Uh, I know on trains, a door opens and that that results in a thousand different messages for indicating the health of that doors. Um, so I imagine the same on buses where, where every uh, bus is connected and the operational 
uh, effects of that are are significant and allows them to preempt issues before they happen. I, I spent a year in Bristol uh, in the mid-70s, and it was one of the first companies to adopt um, a central radio system for the whole network in the city. And, and I left there convinced that you couldn't run an urban bus operation without that. They were one of the participants in a very early automatic vehicle location system, uh, which used vehicle-mounted laser beams. Um, that, not surprisingly, didn't work um, because uh, laser beams didn't like the vibrations of 1970s buses. Um, but it was a brave attempt to uh, to do things, and, and obviously the technologies advanced uh, in that area. And as you say, it's difficult to imagine doing a, an urban bus operation now without uh, AVL technology. Um, whether we always make the best use of it is is a is always an open question. But that's down to staff training and and the freedom to make decisions, uh, which is a, a a managerial issue rather than a technology issue. I think I, I didn't really history of Bristol's ingenuity. I guess right right now they're they're engaged in a seven year program to bring the best things about for stations. Their their rail station is uh, supposed to be the prototype for station of the future ideas, and they're running a number of different projects there. Uh, so I didn't realize that Bristol was at the vanguard of transit technology for so long. Yes, it's uh, it was a, it was a very brave attempt, I think, and uh, and uh, I always admire them for it. it, it I arrived in seventy four, and it, and they just switched the beams off. Um, but um, they were still using the radio uh, and mobile teams of inspectors as troubleshooters. Uh, and that was all still working. Uh, and, and for the year I was there, it worked extremely well. Uh, but it was already um, 40 years ago, or nearly 50 years ago, uh, a nightmarish place in which to operate buses. The congestion was already bad. Um, the top topography was against you. And of course, it, the the companies there have never been able to recruit enough staff. Um, so that's because it's such a prosperous city with the with the aerospace and originally then the tobacco and other industries. Um, so it it it's hugely challenging, though uh, very rewarding. Speaking of stations, uh, and bringing tying this back to your bus experience, bus stations have. In my experience, a uh, sample of one, uh, been pretty dismal places in the past. Um, we're we're working on a project to improve stations in in every way, not just technology, but uh, to set examples for the best ways to make the passenger experience better. Any thoughts about how we can do that around bus stations? I think I think the the overall environment of the key is maintenance. Um, because so often we've seen shiny new bus stations open in town and city centres, uh, only for them to, you know, ten years later to be absolute wrecks because uh, vandalism and other things, and they've not been. The budget has not existed to maintain them. Well, I was going to say that it, your maintenance doesn't jive well with what you've just spoken about shrinking budgets. Mm, exactly. 
of course, one of the things, one of the disadvantages, I suppose you could argue, of, of Britain's deregulated system um, is that the bus stations are rarely owned by the operator. Um, so there's a disconnect between the local authority ownership uh, and the um, uh, operators who use it. And, of course, the operators who use it uh, don't really like to pay the departure charges that the local authority wants to levy on them uh, in order to, to maintain it. So there's a bit of a, a mismatch there, which, is, uh, which has always gone on. Um, there's also, over the years, been uh, this tendency to tuck bus stations away on spare bits of land and not necessarily in the best of locations, or shove them underground uh, out of the way uh, below uh, extensive property developments. My earliest experience of urban bus stations was the Bullring bus station in Birmingham, um, which was underneath the Bullring shopping centre. Um, buses emitted rather more uh, exhaust fumes in those days than they did now, and the place was an absolute nightmare. You know, you were glad to get out of it, um, and uh, you know, but it nevertheless remained in service for. 30 years or so before it was uh, removed from uh, use. Uh, I think that's the first thing. Removing sunlight doesn't seem like a great uh, prescription for fixing the ailments of bus stations. <laughs> Quite. But of course, as land land values of, uh, in city, town and city centres have gone up, it's become even more difficult, I think, to justify. And there's, there's a view, and this has always been the view in London, for instance, that actually you don't want bus stations, you want the stops on the street where the passengers are. Um, and of course that's become steadily more difficult over the years uh, with pedestrianisation schemes uh, and so forth. But certainly, you know, you talk to most bus operators and say, would you like to be on the high street or five minutes walk away in a nice bus station? And most of them would say, we'll be on the high street, please. Yeah. Um, yeah, but bus stops on on the street or at larger multimodal stations that allow you to easily transfer between different modes of getting there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but of course, you know, so often again in in UK, and this is this is partly an accident of history because we built the rail network before most other places. Uh, railway stations in town and city centres don't tend to be very conveniently placed often. Um, so actually, you you've got extensive uh, extensions to reach the rail station uh, for a tiny minority of passengers who are interchanging. So it's that's also a, a challenge that I think a lot of other places around the world don't face. Um, but um, I think you know you see in recent developments in the UK, particularly in London how transforming the environment can make such a difference to the usability. I suppose the prime example now at the moment in London is the Elizabeth Line, um, which is, you know, some of the stations are actually quite breathtaking. Um, so is the bill to build them. But, um, you know, it, 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 the proof of the pudding, if you like, is in the eating. And I was recently in Canary Wharf, using the Jubilee Line extension, which, of course, is coming up for 25 years old and still looks amazingly good because it's so spacious, 
uh, and and was built with quality materials, uh, and is still a, a, an immensely pleasing environment to travel in compared with some of the turn turn of the twentieth century lines that you know form the backbone of the underground network in central London. Small tunnels, you know, lots of passages and turn twists and turns, lots of stairs and so on. Um, so we're we're better at all that than we used to be. And uh, you know the modern examples um, illustrate the point of how much that can transform the whole travelling environment. That yeah, that le- the the legacy of those stations, uh, Bristol Temple Meads, for example, is uh, a centerpiece to the town. It's it's a train station, simple train station really, but the town forms around it, and there's it's it's very well known. Um, the challenges you mentioned about the stations in downtown London and so on, I guess they provide constraints that require a transformative change, like you mentioned, which is very expensive, or you have to live within the constraints that you've got and you can't expand any further or you have to work around them. Um, that said, you know, the stations in, in London, I think Euston Station has been there for 180 years. But one one of my pet peeves is that I still very I find it very hard to traverse these stations to come out the right door to work my way through the 180 years later and we have still haven't found a good way to get through the station at uh, Paddington Station near where our office is it can cost you 10 or 15 minutes if you walk out the wrong door and have to go all the way around that's one of my pet peeves absolutely. Absolutely. Give me, yeah. give me your pet peeve in in the bus industry that we haven't solved yet. Bus or transit in general? Um, I th- uh, gosh. Um, well, while you think about it, I'll go on to my next one, uh, and this amuses my coworkers. But the 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 WC, the toilets. I walk in there. Everybody who's traveling is carrying something. Give me a place to put it. I don't want to put my bag on the floor. <laughs> That's another pet peeve of mine. It's just been lost on so many people, so many operators. Yes, yes. Uh, well, the whole the whole question of uh, toilet facilities is is pretty vexed. I think uh, across the whole public transport industry. Well, it comes back to your your your, your mention of maintenance. Yes, That's costly. Yes, and and there's a. As a seventy-plus-year-old man, this is a subject that's quite dear to my heart. <laughs> well, and and your cohort is growing. It's uh, the population is aging. This is this is what we've discovered to be a primary concern among transit operators is accessibility. And when we first heard that, we thought accessibility for people with disabilities, but it's really an aging population. It's it's people with many different types of uh, impairments. And and one of them, one of the operators, even went as far as saying somebody carrying a lot of luggage or or shopping, grocery shopping. There's that's a that's a a form of disability to them that they need to be conscious to be able to accommodate. I think it's one of the interesting things over the last thirty years, you know, to to go from the stage where um, the vehicle inspectorate. Um, from the government was very reluctant to even allow a wheelchair anywhere near a bus. Um, and we've got to the stage now. But at every stage of the uh, accessibility improvements, 
it's been demonstrated that the benefits go far, far wider than than the immediate target audience, as it were. Um, you know, from uh, step-free access to uh, um, kneeling buses to wider aisles, all these things uh, affect, as you rightly say, people with shopping or with luggage or women with pushchairs or and as well as um, the 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 dis disabled groups that they were originally conceived for so uh, that's an example of of where improvements can can spring wider and i suppose what we were talking about earlier with zero emission buses is another example of that you know they're primarily about air quality and about decarbonization but they have other benefits um, you know, the re noise reduction in town and city centres being a, a, a prime example, but also the, the improvement of the ride quality and the reduction of the of stress uh, for for users of the of the vehicles. So you know, there's there's all sorts of uh, unseen benefits from things like that. Um, the um, question of um, my pet peeve. I suppose it's very difficult. There are so many. <laughs> <laughs> what have we not tackled yet? What might we tackle in the near future? I think it, it is, I suppose it is about, it's still about customer relations. It's still about persuading um, staff that the public is not the enemy, even though some of them do occasionally behave badly. Uh, to, to encourage a, an atmosphere where uh, people smile, um, both passengers and, and staff. Uh, and, you know, it, it can be dismissed as a meaningless thing, but um, actually the whole question of, um, you know, delighting the customer, as some operators put it, as their aim, I think is, is very valid. And uh, we, we've got far more work to do to that. Um, so that you know, people don't dread uh, having to get the bus. You know, it's part of the fun of going out for the day, uh, rather than than something to be got over uh, before you get onto the real business of the day. Because we, you know, we forget sometimes, particularly if we're keen and enthusiastic, that bus and train travel is only ever a means to an end. Uh, it's not an end in itself. So that we've got to make. Uh, that means to an end as stress-free and as attractive uh, and as enjoyable as we possibly can. Canadian band once wrote uh, in a song, the point of the journey is not to arrive. <laughs> if we could make transit, make transit more consistent with that, we'd be in a much better place, I think. Absolutely, yes. Shifting this a bit, we're coming up to the end, but um, we've, we've addressed your pet peeve. We'll keep working on that. Hopefully lots of transit organizations will keep plugging away. But in, in the span of your career, what's the best innovation you've seen, technical or not, or both? But what, what's the what's the most transformative thing? Could be trivial, could be huge. What 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 excites you over what you've seen in the past? We know we know how you feel about the future, so let's talk about the exciting things of the past. <laughs> I think it has to be the uh, the smart card. Uh, and everything that followed with with phones and contactless, I think it it's transformed the way we collect our fares, the way people pay, the way people perceive fares, and everything. Uh, I 
and it's just it has been a transformative technology i think um and you know the regret is i suppose that having got it working in places like london and hong kong quite early uh, the rest of the country's taken rather a long time to follow suit we're getting there but there's still a long way to go uh, but it, it it is really uh, the most transformative technology I think I've seen in the industry. Which, to our delight, requires great communications. Absolutely. So, uh, Chris, uh, we've we've talked about your extensive experience and and what you've uh, observed over those years, and we've talked about your somewhat depressing view of the future. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you're not always right, but. Uh, um, today, today, what, what's the best example you can give of, of a transit organization that, you know, is, is doing it right, doing the best it can. Nobody's perfect, but where are the, where are the shining examples for us to look to? I, I would have to say, um, two places really, um, Brighton and Nottingham, uh, they have the highest bus ridership per head of the population in the UK by a country mile, outside London, sorry. Um, and uh, the, they have very strong relationships between the bus operators and the local authorities. Um, and the two local authorities, Nottingham especially, have a very long history of pro-public transport policies consistently applied to things like parking policy, to bus priorities, to bus infrastructure, and everything else. And, you know, the city, Nottingham particularly, has two very high-quality bus operators um, that, that do compete to a, an extent, but actually using the bus in Nottingham is a very different experience from, from other places in the UK. And, of course, they have uh, added to that in the last 20 years with the, with the light rail system. Uh, and if you add ridership by bus uh, to ridership by tram, then their trip rate for public transport use is positively stratospheric. So it's, it's a shining example, even in you know what other people think of as a difficult environment for authorities. It's a shining example of how consistent policies applied over a long period can actually transform a city. And of course, it was uh, named the least car dependent city in the UK uh, some years ago. And I mean, like everybody else, they've suffered from from the aftermath of COVID. But I think their, their trip rates are still very high and very good. So those would be my two nominations. I have to believe that uh, that is the, the, the involvement, the participation they have in their public transit system is also a reflection of their passenger experience. They must provide a great experience for people to want to come out with transit well. Yes, absolutely. It is, It is. as I say, it's a different experience from everywhere else. Uh, Nottingham City Transport has been our UK bus operator of the year in the UK bus awards that I'm involved with uh, four or five times over the years. Uh, and they're, they're always outstanding. And our top national bus driver competition, I would say probably seven out of ten winners have either been Nottingham City Transport or Trent Barton, the, the, the other local operator. 
So it's it's a consistent high standard. So how do they do this cost effectively? What's what's their magic? How can we can't replicate this in other places? I think it's it's um, it started out um, with uh, with Trent Barton in the early nineties with a very intensive uh, focus on customer service with the staff. They were the first to introduce customer service training for their drivers. Uh, they've been at it for however many years, nearly 30 years. Uh, and as a result, over a long period, they've changed the culture of the company. Uh, this had its effect. Uh, Nottingham was already a pioneer in terms of managing the private car. They, have, they were famously a pioneer of park and ride. Uh, they tried uh, a cap and collar system uh, with traffic management in the 70s to try and uh, divert through traffic away from the town and city centres that they served. That didn't work as such, but it was an indicator uh, of where they were prepared to go in, in managing the private car and its access. When uh, Meadow Hall opened, the shopping centre north of Sheffield, uh, the city council recognised that as a significant threat to its um, uh, to the primacy of its shopping, they they were the first city I think in the UK to appoint a town centre manager um, who liaised with the retailers and everybody to make sure that the city centre retained as a traffic as, as an attractive uh, thing as it could compared with the potential composition. So in in all respects, not just the physical aspect of transport. Um, they were leaders in getting the local business community involved in planning network, Nottingham Express Transit. Um, they actually raised money from uh, local businesses to try and contribute to the cost of planning the network. Um, and, and in all sorts of ways, over many, many years, they've been pioneers uh, and they've kept it up. Um, obviously, in some respect, and of course, the other big thing was that they uh, introduced the workplace parking levy, um, which has enabled them to fund improvements in transport in, in a way that other towns and cities haven't been able to. There's a combination of all those things uh, that, that has driven them to where they are today and done so in, a, in an atmosphere of remarkable political consensus, I think. A number of the things you mentioned there relate directly to the things that we've discussed and, and observed around stations of the future. Stations should be a hub of the community. And it sounds like they've got that community thinking around transit. And you mentioned retailers and all the other stakeholders and and the services that all come together around transit to make it a better experience. It sounds like they've taken that thought into consideration, which is great. Um, we're, we're running out of time here. I just wanted to, one last question about uh, your experience. You uh, were a director in the Group Travel Organizer magazine, but I haven't, I haven't enjoyed that magazine. I haven't uh, read it, uh, but uh, it sounds like group travel is one of my worst nightmares because I would, to me, I would call that the squirrel herding monthly. <laughs> it, it's so difficult. <laughs> But uh, so I want to talk to you off the record about how you get everybody connected. But 
I, I just wanted to ask you, you've done uh, some extensive uh, work in travel as well. Where is your favorite place to go? Where is your where is your top place on the planet to go visit? Oh, on the planet, I, I, I would have to be Venice, I think. Uh, and I would be very upset if I thought that I wouldn't make it at least once more before uh, before I reached the end. I first went when I was 12 uh, on a school trip, uh, and I've been back three times since, uh, and my love for the city has only grown each time. Uh, in, in the UK... Um, that's a much more difficult one. I, I absolutely love uh, the the Lake District and the Yorkshire Dales, where I I lived in the Yorkshire Dales for twenty five years. Um, I, I love London. Uh, I was born and brought up in the city, uh, and uh, my joke is that if I don't go for a few weeks, I miss it. But then it only takes when I get there. It only takes me ten minutes to remember why I left. Uh, but it is a very special place, I think. So I, I just love travel. I mean, we're off to Spain next week, and uh, that'll be fun. And we go by train, which is even more fun. And uh, so, and you know, there's Paris, there's Amsterdam, there's the Hague, all sorts of places that that I love and would like to see more often. Amsterdam, for me, uh, all of these positives and the travel on the transit side of things, we could have a long discussion about Amsterdam. I love London too, uh, until I have to pay for something. <laughs> yes. Anyway, Chris, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate uh, the the uh, uh, very insightful chat, and uh, and uh, thanks for being here. Hopefully, we'll see you again soon. Thank you for asking me. It's been a great pleasure. As you might gather, I'm quite keen on talking about these things. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Follow or subscribe on the platform of your choice to stay connected and keep up to date with the latest innovations at Bolden.com.